Hi, everyone. Before we get to the show, I wanted to let you know about my new on-demand course for discovering and developing core values. On this podcast, I've chatted with many guests about the importance of incorporating core values in their life and career. High achievers will tell you it's the key to many of their accomplishments. I get asked a lot by readers of Friday Forward and Elevate about the best way to do this, and I haven't had an easy answer to date. This course is that way. The course walks you through a tested method to help you brainstorm, refine, and test a list of personal core values. The course can be completed in about an hour, but it will prompt plenty of reflection and work in the days, weeks, and months that follow. Start discovering the principles that matter most to you and get better alignment. You can learn more about the course at corevaluescourse.com. I hope you check it out at corevaluescourse.com. Now let's get to the episode. We have to do a lot of listening. And to people who aren't necessarily people we're comfortable with, that's the other thing. I think one of the things we've really learned this year is that sometimes from the top up, we hire people, we lean on people who are a lot like us. And we have to be more willing to listen to people who might have a different point of view. We don't even understand. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Jean-Luc Godard. Sometimes reality is too complex. Stories give it form. Our guest today, Erin Moriarty, has been sharing crucial stories with a wide audience for many years. She's been a CBS News journalist for three decades, serving as a correspondent on 48 Hours since 1990. Her work is featured throughout CBS's news programs, and she is the host of the True Crime podcast, My Life of Crime. Erin has received nine Emmy Awards and has covered stories such as the Iraq War, the death of Princess Diana, the Jean Benet Ramsey case, and the story of the infamous millionaire Robert Durst. Erin, welcome. It's great to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. It's an honor to be here. Thanks, Bob. I really appreciate it. Well, I guess timing is everything. Uh, and we'll get into that. But uh, let's start looking back at, at history a little bit. Um, you know, you broke into a tough field journalism, but not through the normal ranks of maybe writing or marketing. I think you started your career as a attorney. So what, what made you decide to go to law school? And then what made you decide to not want to be a lawyer? Well, what's so funny is um, I never really decided not to be a lawyer. I always wanted to be a lawyer. I grew up watching Perry Mason. My father was a lawyer. Um, I always joke he had four girls. I was his only son because I was as interested in the field as he was. Um, And so, of course, I went to law school, although when I went, particularly in the Midwest, um, women were a very small minority. Um, I started practicing law, which is what I wanted to do. Um, I was hoping to be a litigator. But the problem is in the Midwest, um, back in the late 70s, early 80s, there weren't a lot of female litigators. And I was working for a law firm. I was the only woman. And I thought I needed to do something to become a rainmaker, bring in business. But most of my friends from home, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, they were they were starting families, not companies. So when I read about a show, Westinghouse was going to try out a show in Columbus, a television program. I had this harebrained idea that I would audition for it. And then when I got my name and face out, 
people would then turn to me as a lawyer. I know that sounds like a harebrained idea, and it really was, but what it did do is it opened my eyes to a totally different field where, in a way, you were litigating, you were performing, you were persuading viewers, and you got to look at stories that fascinated me. And so um, it kind of taught me something that I've used ever since to be open to new ideas, not to be so stuck with your goals or ideas, because I never would have done this if I had just said, okay, I'm a lawyer, that's all I'm ever going to be. Yeah. And, and look, the time frame was a little different, but my kids and I watched the uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie. Uh, I know there's two of them. So, but the thing that was a shock for me was, you know, the seat was where she finished top of her law class at Harvard and Columbia and no one would give her a job in the field. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. She had to start at uh, Rutgers as a professor. I mean, she was as impressive as her husband who had no trouble getting a job and no one wanted to hire her. Yeah. Those, all those interviews, it was, that was absolutely fascinating. So how, what was the actual shift into TV broadcasting? Um, I started, I was host of a show called PM Magazine and I did that in Columbus, Ohio. I was hooked. And then I got a call from a station in Baltimore and they asked me to try news I packed my car and I drove to Baltimore. And that was a tough transition because PM Magazine was more of an entertainment show. All of a sudden, I was competing and working with colleagues who had experience, who had trained voices. And so that was probably my most difficult time. That was kind of the make or break time. But I think what saved me was because I had the law degree and the law background, um, I offered to do all the legal and consumer stories five days a week. And uh, that created a niche for me and kind of set me on my way. And did you have a breakout moment at all? Was it a breakout story or, or you know, a, a early in your career? Well, I did have a breakout <laughs> moment. I hate to admit it. Um, I was not doing well initially in Baltimore. And uh, Westinghouse, the managers of Westinghouse sent me to New York and I learned later I was about to get fired. And I sat with a executive producer and went through my tapes and told him everything I knew that I was doing wrong. And that must have been a breakthrough moment because he said, go back and fix it. And that was that was a change. I never had a problem again. Um, I think it was kind of, it scared me. It made me take this business very seriously. And I had to, I mean, luckily it was, I just lived there with my dog and I just lived and worked the business. That was it. So did you know, you're saying you looked at the tapes, did you know what was wrong or did he? Yeah, I could tell. (laughs) Yeah, you know, one one thing that um, I always have to tell younger people who go into the business, you think you're doing a really great job on tape, but then when you look at it from the outside, you realize you're not. It really is a skill to tell a story on television or on radio and to capture the story, either with pictures, if you have video or with your voice. It takes time, it takes practice, it takes looking at your tape, it takes doing stories over and over again and trying to do them in a clear but short, concise way and to grab people. 
that takes time. It, it was much harder than I ever guessed it would be. Well, that's interesting. I'm curious how you sort of view, I guess, the joke, the kids these days, um, because typically and I know we know a couple of people have gone. I mean, this is this is like minor league baseball. This is tough stuff, right? You go to places that no one knows and you do it for year after year, day after day. And then you move up to a little city that maybe someone's heard of. And then you move up to another city. And it is a long process before you make the major leagues. And in the parallel social media world now, it's like, how do you create a video that a million people see, you know, overnight? Are those the same things? Are they different? Is it, it, do people put the same work in there? Or, I mean, I think it's one of the hardest fields to break through in is just traditional broadcast journalism. Well, my view has been, and it may have changed now for someone coming into the business, but I think the people who wanted to be on television and wanted to be anchors have a tougher time. I think the people who love reporting, and I will always give an example of Katie Couric. Katie Couric didn't start as an anchor. One of the reasons why she was so good on the Today Show was because she loved to tell stories. She was a reporter put in an anchor slot. And I always use her as an example with young people. You have to want to tell these stories. You have to be naturally curious. You have to love being out with people. Um, I've met, (laughs) I've had colleagues who hated talking to people. They (laughs) did their interviews and then they'd say, okay, I'm done. You know, the, the best part, and I'm not exaggerating, it's so exciting to report while you're talking with someone and learning something that no one else knew and you get so excited. And to me, that's part just innate and also a skill you develop. But if you're not naturally curious, if you don't really enjoy talking to people, you are not going to make it in this business. Yes, you have to you have to care about your appearance to a certain extent, but I think the audience, particularly today and particularly in light of Oprah, I think Oprah really brought the audience to see, yes, you could be a little overweight, but if you are, if you glow, if you have this wonderful personality, that's what draws people in. And so appearance matters, but not nearly as much as your ability to tell a story, your curiosity, your enjoyment in learning that story. That to me is what I think makes the difference between people who really go places and those who stay in small markets. They might have good jobs, but they don't advance. I know we're going to get to this more a little bit later. I don't want to get too far down a rabbit hole, but I think it's a good time to to dive into it because when you talk about the storytelling aspect, and I think this is changed with the sort of politicization of, of news. But what was the obligation you felt to tell a good story? I mean, there are multiple versions of the truth, but a good story, a compelling story, a true story, or make the story fit your narrative, which is what we're seeing, you know, so much today. How has your view on that changed or evolved over time? Well, I'd have to say that um, starting when I first started in local news and I was in Baltimore when I offered to do my own pieces, What my goal was, was to be the topic at everyone's dinner table. I wanted to bring up something they hadn't read, they hadn't heard. That was my goal, to tell them something that they didn't know that, even if they were angry with me, that they would discuss at the table. And I do know, and I know some of my colleagues who want to go out already knowing the story, 
But the most exciting stories are the ones you don't know and you're learning as you go along. And I think um, I'm right now preparing a story that may or may not air on the day of inauguration, but it did surprise me. I was in Kenosha speaking with people um, that I had spoken to four years ago when President Trump had been inaugurated and they had been Kenosha for the first time in 40 some odd years had gone Republican. It had always been a real Democrat stronghold. And so I was back here to talk about, so are you going to give President Biden a chance? What do you do? And I found so many of these people still believe with, and they admit without any real evidence that President Trump did win this election. And so that story kind of changed what I thought we were. It was just how do we bridge that gap right now? Um, going there and not really knowing what they thought and what they were feeling is what's going to form my story, not what I think the story is. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. So that's a good example. So in that case, you, you, you're going to Kenosha, you're going to follow up on this four years later. What, what are the questions? What are the tactics? What are the things that you would do, you did differently to hear the narrative that was going on versus you think that people today are jumping into trying to just add to what they already know? Well, one thing I have to do, and this this is something that I have encountered, and I think every correspondent, every reporter does right now, is that there, um, over the last four years, sadly, there has been, um, in part from top down from the White House, 
this narrative created around reporters that we have these uh, stories that we've been ordered to cover, we have a point of view. That is really true in a place like Kenosha. They, uh, one of the women I interviewed, a teacher who says, you in the Northeast, you don't understand us in the Midwest, even though I grew up in the Midwest. So one of the things I really have to do is, first is just listen and try to get over that terrible obstacle. Um, sometimes I encounter this in the field where somebody will go, oh, you're just part of the mainstream press. And I'll say, no, I'm I'm Aaron Moriarty. I'm a mother. I'm a sister. I'm a wife. I, I'm just like you. I have a home. I, you know, I have to try to make someone see me human so that they don't think they're talking to a quote unquote reporter, but somebody who's really interested in what they have to say um, and will portray it correctly. So that's a huge obstacle that I have to deal with. And with the pandemic, that has complicated it. I do interviews by Zoom and and people don't get to see me and hang out with me and feel me. And they just have to kind of trust me. One thing that has worked for me is, as you pointed out, I have been on television a very long time. And I've covered so many different stories that I think generally people know I don't, I, I mean, everyone has a point of view, but I work hard not to. I really work hard to, when there are two stories to tell them, or if there's a wrongful conviction that my reporting has indicated needs to be reported, and I believe strongly in it, they will trust my judgment on that. And that takes time being on air. It takes, that's why I do so many different shows. I do CBS This Morning, 48 Hours, Sunday Morning, anything so people can get to know my work and trust me. All right, well, I'm going to ask you to give advice to business leaders and, and entrepreneurs, given your your background, because I think one of the things that's always amazed me in the role of leadership is that when you hear this story, right, from someone on your team, that this thing happened, and you you hear that side of the story, and, and let's say it's about another person or another thing, and you're like, I can't believe this, and you go into the other room, and you're, you're like, I, I just heard this story, tell me what happened, and then you hear a totally different story. Same event totally different story. Uh, you know, and the, the general assessment I think is truth is, is probably somewhere in the middle, but I am just always surprised. I always assume that the second, I guess I should be surprised, right? Because this is like my sons, like someone comes into the room crying and what happened? Oh, he hit me over the bat with a head and you go yell at that one for that. And they say, well, he hit me with a hockey stick, which is why I hit with the, you know, you're always missing a part of the detail. But when you hear different, totally different versions of the same story, like, how can leaders act like reporters and try to figure out what, where the truth is it in the middle or, you know, which one is closer to the truth? Oh, that's a, that is really tough because we struggle with that as reporters all the time. We have the advantage that when we're telling a story, we can give the different versions, the Rashomon, you know, really it's this idea that people are looking at the exact same event, but right. seeing it through different lens a perfect example I think of, and I think about this all the time, is the O.J. Simpson trial. That's a perfect example where there was only one camera in that courtroom. Everyone in this country saw the same thing happening in O.J. Simpson's trial. And yet, depending on what community you lived in, you either thought the system was working or you thought the system didn't. You saw the same video in different ways. So sometimes it's very difficult to get to the truth. And I think, again, for business leaders, for reporters, we have to do a lot of listening. 
and to people who aren't necessarily people we're comfortable with. That's the other thing. I think one of the things we've really learned this year is that sometimes from the top up, we hire people, we lean on people who are a lot like us. And we have to be more willing to listen to people who might have a different point of view. We don't even understand. One of the people that I interviewed yesterday, I think a number of us in the press thought everybody's reaction would be the same. Oh, how awful, you know, the president uh, didn't immediately say to people, this is a terrible thing, go home, this is awful. Um, Some people found what he did to be empowering. Again, example of a powerful leader. And so again, we have to listen. We may be surprised by that, but um, we have to be open to that is a viewpoint in this country. And the thing I think we tend to do that's upsetting is just labeling, putting right rather than hearing the individual stories. This is true business too. It's just easy to put a big label on something. Oh, far left, far right, throw everyone in the same bucket. It just it just seems like such a simple and disingenuous way to <laughs> attack everything. That's a real problem right now. But the other problem also, Bob, is that because there are so many different sources of information some accurate, some not, some news, some protect news, Um, you do have these huge divisions now. And so it's easy for people to put others in little boxes. Um, They're only listening now uh, to, to people that they agree with. They're not open to other ideas. And I think that is putting us all in little boxes. I think that's the biggest problem. I mean, I talk to people in Kenosha who no longer watch uh, national news or read national papers. They really depend on Facebook and their friends, and they're not getting a larger picture, but they think they have it. And I think that is why we tend to put people, we tend to label people and say, oh, far right, left. That actually, during this entire election year, has driven me crazy either way to describe somebody because. I think everybody has a little bit of all of that within them. Yeah. Just different percentages. Yeah, right. I mean, again, just we're recording this, you know, we're January 7th, just for context. And there was a a group of people who did something that I think everyone mostly (laughs) strongly disagrees with. But that is not representative of uh, millions of people. That is representative of the people they did it. It's so easy there are things that people said or did that may have encouraged or thought that they, you know, permitted that behavior, but you just can't extrapolate something a thousand people did to millions of people. It's unfair to everyone. No, I think it was though a wake up call that there are people who feel so strongly that they take actions that most of us are concerned about. And so it is a wake up call that these divisions, there has to be some way to bridge these divisions or at least listen to each other. That was not the way to handle things yesterday. Four people died. Yeah. And and the ray of light, I think, for me was really saw some of the speeches last night. I think I think the gravity of that hit everyone. I, I mean, the speeches were, they were somber, they were leadership oriented, and they were unifying. And and so I, I carry some hope in that. But let's switch back to, I guess, I say more fun. But when you tell me about when you, you so you started, you joined 48 Hours. How did that opportunity come about? 
Well, I was, I first came to CBS News as a consumer legal correspondent in the morning. And I love that. Um, I had gone from being afraid to have to do my own stories to just reveling in it, uh, finding stories. My goal was to find a story before it was in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. You know, I wanted to be cutting edge. And then they started 48 hours about three years after I started at CBS and they were only using mail correspondence. And I got a call asking me whether I would be willing to just be borrowed because initially we were just borrowed. And I fell in love with that because here we were spending, I mean, a lot of people ask me, where did 48 hours come? But when the show started, we really covered an issue for 48 hours. We got very little sleep. We would cover it for 48 hours. So we would go into a uh, emergency room in a hospital for 48 hours. Who came in? Who was turned away? Um, what were the problems the hospitals had? What were the, you know, especially during the AIDS crisis, that type of thing. Um, we did a very tough topic. We did abortions in uh, Georgia, of all things. Uh, women who were either trying to get other women not to or women who were undergoing abortions. We tackled some very tough issues. And of course, that was exciting to me to see stories develop right in front of me, to be able to do cutting edge. We were doing cutting edge. We were dealing with AIDS when a lot of people were not covering it in depth. And then what really I think changed my life and and changed the direction of 48 hours was the OJ Simpson trial. I'm a lawyer, so of course they send me there to cover it. Um, I'm just reveling in this this trial that was unheard of. Um, We've got cameras in there every day. Um, We're dealing with this new technology called DNA that I had to take a real crash course in. And then also at the end of this, we realized that communities saw the same pictures differently. And so all of a sudden I'm thinking, this is a great area to educate people, to tell great stories, get people to care about the judicial system. And so one was, of course, the fact that people were fascinated with the trial. And so there was an audience But two, DNA then, the more you looked at it, the more it revealed real problems with the judicial system, coerced confessions. Used to be people thought, oh, nobody would ever confess to something they didn't do. But then DNA began to show that one quarter of the people who have been exonerated with DNA, absolutely exonerated, had actually confessed to something they didn't do. Eyewitness testimony. We used to think that was the most reliable, somebody saw it with their own eyes. Because of DNA, we know it's maybe the least reliable (laughs) evidence. It became exciting to me to begin to cover it. Now, 48 Hours initially didn't want to do those stories. They wanted to do these stories of beautiful women getting killed by great-looking husbands, vice versa, you know, these, you know, husband and wife. Because I will say there's a great audience for that. But then I, the more I would find cases, and I think the real breakthrough case for me and for 48 Hours was the case of Ryan Ferguson. And he was a, a very young man, 21 at the time, who was in Missouri accused of killing a, a sports editor in a newspaper because a friend of his had a dream, so we called it the dream killer, that the two of them had done it. They had been together that night. But there was absolutely no evidence. So I started on it before he was even tried. 
um, because I thought there's no evidence. He's not going to get convicted. And then he did get convicted. And so we ended up doing five stories. And every time we did, new evidence would come out. And 10 years later, 10 years later, I was there when Ryan Ferguson walked out of prison. And so that really changed our show. And it changed what I did. I still do the cases of uh, husbands accused of killing their wives. But I've done so many wrongful convictions. And uh, we have seen many I think the last count, six or seven people walk out of prison um, in part because of our reporting. Um, of course, you always have to have good lawyers, but I'm working on a, I have been working on a case for almost 20 years where a man's, his conviction was overturned, but he's still sitting in prison. It's a very frustrating story, but he has this amazing team of lawyers because the American Bar Association saw my original story and ask this law firm to take the case pro bono. Wow. So you're doing good stories and doing good. I mean, what's better than that? In 2017, entrepreneur John Rampton was frustrated with the available calendar tools, which led him to create calendar.com. Calendar.com allows all of your different calendars to come together in one place. It also has some great features that solve many of the common frustration of team calendars. Smart links with notifications ensure you never need to worry about double booking or no-shows. The Find a Time feature compares everyone's schedules at once, finding the optimum time to meet. No more emailing back and forth trying to find out when everyone is free. And you also get analytics that will give you reports that show how you and your team are spending your time, allowing you to be more efficient. If you're looking to make yourself or your team more efficient this year, head over to calendar.com now to start your 30-day free trial and see the difference for yourself. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-A-R dot com. So you've had to have done some fascinating interviews. <laughs> Which one were you most intimidated by? And how did you prepare yourself for that interview? Well, probably the one I was most intimidated by, which is always the best thing to happen to you because then you do the most preparation. So in this case, Crosley Green, the case I just mentioned, the man who his conviction was overturned July 2018, but is still sitting in prison because of the state of Florida. But that's another story. So his prosecutor agreed to do an interview. We had been pushing him, pushing him, pushing him. So I was terrified. My heart pounded the entire two hours that I interviewed him because when you do something like this, you have to know more than he does. You really do. So you have to read every transcript, but not just read every transcript. It has to be in your head. And you were, you were cross-examining him, right? You were looking for holes in his case? Absolutely. And I mean, that is why the law degree, even if I didn't practice law long enough, but that training where, number one, you're not you're intimidated, but you're not so intimidated that you don't do the interview. And two, that you're energized to try to, to, if you believe in a story, in a wrongful conviction, and you've looked at all the evidence, you should be able to deal with prosecutors like Christopher White. And at one point in the interview, he actually said, well, maybe Crosley Green didn't do it, but you're not going to convince me that the girlfriend did. So, I mean, this is a man he put on death row and he is now saying to me, well, maybe there isn't enough evidence to say he did it. That's astounding. But I I will say that my heart pounded for the entire two hour interview. The other interview that- Can I ask one more question before you go? Of course. So for that two hours, how much time did you spend preparing? 
Oh, probably a week. I mean, I'm sure I read over everything. I talked with the, my producer. I'm, And I still didn't do it perfectly. There were things afterwards I kicked myself. Why didn't I bring that up? Why didn't I? Uh, you know, you still don't do it perfectly. Yeah. I just, I want to highlight the point because this comes up a lot in that I always say like, I think this is where athletes actually get a, not a bad rap, but maybe not appreciation of, you know, a full week of practice for a two hour game where most of us in other situations or business or leadership or otherwise walk into it with no practice, no training and, and expect it to go well. So that, that is, that is sort of an athlete ratio that you had of like, I'm going to, I'm going to practice the entire week for this two hours because it's the most important. Well, and not only that, here's another real important trick. And I share this all the time with people. Um, it's a memory trick. So if you're looking at a list of questions, people will take advantage of that. You're trying to intimidate them too, so that they're a little off and they're going to maybe tell you more than they wanted to. And so I not only, when I'm preparing my questions, I write them down and then I read them. Then I write them down again and then I read them. And then I maybe write them down the third time. And then I write just keywords in the you know, in the edges so that I never have to look down. Or if I do, I'm reminded immediately by that keyword. And when you are staring at somebody in the eye and you're not letting them look away, it is the most effective way to interview someone in two ways. Number one, they think you're really interested. So even somebody who's going to tell you the truth, it's it's not a prosecutor that you're trying to get information from. You just want someone to open up to you. Looking at them rather than looking at the questions is absolutely the way to do it. Also, if you're trying to make somebody really put them in the hot seat because they're going to, you know, think that they can outsmart you, that they have more information, then again, you don't look at your questions. You know the information. At one point, there was a time we were talking about evidence and he goes, well, I don't know that they didn't do this. And I said, they didn't. And he took my word for it. And and it was true because I'd read it, but I felt that preparation was absolutely necessary. And then when you raise that idea about athletes, another thing, I think staying in good shape matters for our jobs, yeah. running, working out. You really do need to have um, a stamina to do this, to sit for two hours and have your brain just moving. And I think that sometimes you need the same kind of workout an athlete does. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
That no, it's a great point. I think look, our our physical capacity and ability certainly uh, is connected to our, our intellectual capacity and how we feel. If you're exhausted, no one, no. If you're mentally or physically exhausted, just aren't feeling good. You're just not. You're not sharp. That's the one nice thing about the pandemic because I used to travel every single week. Yeah, and I will say I've gotten more sleep. But that's the only good thing about the yeah. pandemic. <laughs> More sleep, less interaction. All right, so yes. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. So, what's what's your best, like, most fascinating crime story that you covered, where you really you felt part of? Like, I, I just don't. This is a who done it, and I don't. I don't know who did it. Oh boy, that's a tough one. Um, oh, I know. I've, I have one that's ongoing right now. So um, there was a woman that I I do go every year to the Innocence Convention because you end up hearing about really interesting cases you might not otherwise. And I met a woman there whose conviction had been overturned temporarily if the state of Michigan had uh, appealed it. So she and is facing retrial, but she had been convicted of killing her husband by setting the house on fire and then running him over with her car. And I mean, the story was so outlandish. Um, she had written her own habeas petition and a court had listened to her and overturned the conviction. So it was a fascinating story. So the house, like, okay, she lit the house on fire. <laughs> he, he got out of the house? He got out of the house, okay. burned. And then she says she didn't see him and she hit him with her car. Oh, so she confesses to hitting him with the car, but oh, not Oh, yeah, she didn't okay. know it initially, she yeah. said. She realized after the autopsy when... I mean, he did die from the fire, but he did have injuries, you know, trauma injuries from hit, being hit by the car. So I believed her. She is such a convincing person. I'd spent a long time talking to her in Atlanta where I met her at the convention. And then I interviewed her. But I did know she has four children, two girls who believe in her innocence and two sons who don't. Hmm. So I interviewed the sons after I interviewed her. And my heart stopped. They do not believe she's innocent and they tell the exact opposite story. It's kind of what you were talking about. They were there at the same time. They saw the same things. They saw it through very different lens. They thought she killed their dad. And these are her kids. Wait, the daughter. So the daughters were also there and had a totally different version of the same. Yes, I talked to the daughters. I knew that there was a difference. And so I talked to the daughters separately and then the sons. I didn't realize they were all there. They were all there, though. Okay. Yes. But what's shocking was how convincing, credible the sons were. I so we did do the story. I had a bit of a battle with my producer because my producer did not go with me interviewing the young men. And so it was not quite as taken. She had been with me to meet um, Linda Sturmer, the defendant. So we battled a bit. In the end, we kind of let the audience decide. And it's a good thing because now they are going to retry her. But I don't know. Oh. I don't know. I find Linda Sturmer incredibly credible. I think that if you were going to try to kill your husband with a fire and then run him over with a car, that does, she's very smart. That's not the wisest, yeah. smartest way. It's not quiet. <laughs> yes, to get rid of a husband. Um, she did spend eight years, I believe, um, in prison uh, before her case was overturned. Uh, so it was a very risky 
So I don't know what to think in that case, but that's kind of rare. I think after I've read the transcripts and spoken with people, I have a pretty good sense now. When I say that, sometimes my idea of what happened is different than what the prosecutor thinks. There was a woman who killed her boyfriend and the prosecution and they managed, they convicted her of first degree. I never thought it was first degree. I think from studying the case, I think she was going to kill herself. And when her boyfriend didn't seem to care, she turned the gun on him. The result was the same. She killed him. But what happened to me was more interesting if you spent time talking to her and really analyzing for the prosecutor, they wanted to prove first degree. That's all that mattered. And they weren't really interested in the nuances and what this defendant was going through. Sometimes I think our stories are more interesting. So the word I want to, this is perfect setup for a question I wanted to ask you. You mentioned credibility a couple of times. I, I wrote a post about credibility after the election and just the danger these days of credibility in terms of what people are saying or what they're doing and, you know, how easily it can be lost. You know, you have the, the mayor of Denver tweeting that everyone should stay home for the holidays from an airplane flight as he was flying to another state for Thanksgiving. When you're interviewing, when you're meeting, like, if you have early issues of credibility, does it end up usually always manifesting itself as, or, or, or is it sort of like you can, are those issues you can get around or when you, have you found that like when there's credibility issues early with the discussion or a person that tends to sort of be a forewarning of, of larger credibility problems? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think if you have, it's almost what most judges tell jurors. <laughs> if you find that the witness lied once, you can, you can distrust or discount everything they say after that. Um, I mean, you are always concerned, but you know, I have so many people asking me, Oh, can you interview someone and tell whether they're telling the truth or not? I will say after years of interviewing people and staring at their faces, as I interview them, not looking down, watching their faces change. I can tell when someone's uncomfortable with the question yeah. and they don't like a question or they're maybe not telling me the whole thing. I can't tell whether whether someone's lying or not. Or more important, they may be lying, but why are they lying? Not necessarily because they're guilty, but maybe some other reason. And so what I always tell people is I never rely on my gut, my judgment of, of interviewing. I will judge somebody, but then look at the facts, the documents, the information. And if that doesn't help, then you are stuck with no definitive answer here and you have to tell both sides of it. But nobody, I don't believe, even those who say they can, look at a person and tell whether they're lying or not. Um, credibility is sometimes very difficult because somebody may not be telling you the truth for a reason that has nothing to do with the issue or not. Um, they're uncomfortable. They think it makes them look bad. Um, so it may not be a credibility problem at all. They're just not telling you the whole story. So it's a matter of talking to people and trying to get the truth from them and then looking at the facts, the documents. And that's really the only way you can even do the story. You can't do it on just the, the documents and just the interviews. But this is the danger of credibility. I know you're tying it to sort of truth or not, but I, I think in the public personal brand, social media world that we live in, when you see something, you don't validate it as true, and then you share it, that has implications for your credibility, right? I, I mean, then you start, oh, well, you know, I, I, Aaron 
posted these three things that were not true. Now, I'm not sure I can trust her. I don't I don't think people are fully aware of, you know, how, how damaging this could be to our credibility. And and we're, we're seeing a lot of stuff and just assuming it's true and, and, and then reposting our opinions as it's true without really any verification of the facts. Well, I have to agree with you, but I think one of the things that one of the reasons why I've stayed working at CBS News as long as I have is I think it's really the only network that we have real standards that we have to follow. And if I post something that's inaccurate, I, I could lose my job over it. Um, if I, We have to be so careful, even just with what you say on a podcast, what you post on Twitter. If you're not absolutely sure, you're totally, I mean, you're absolutely right, Bob. My credibility is on the line every single day. Every single time I do a story, every post that I put on Twitter, if people can't count on it, but I know that a lot of people don't. And um, in this day and age of, of either Instagram or Facebook and posting, people will retweet or repost something that they like, but they won't necessarily know whether it's true or not. Yeah. That scares me to death. I'd rather do less then make a mistake, um, lose my job or lose my credibility. But you're absolutely right. In the, Now, it almost feels like today it's just to be heard and not necessarily what you're saying, um, to have your name out there. I mean, there is some backlash now. I mean, I think influencers are realizing that there are people just almost just sitting in wait, hoping you make a mistake. We've seen that. Right. The podcaster um, who had such a following, the young podcaster who made some racist remarks about a colleague, and now she's she's lost her job. You know, she was um, so there is a backlash if you get caught and you're not being accurate with your information. But you're right. There's so much out there and it's really hard to judge what's true, what's not, who has credibility and who doesn't. So. Bring, bring it around there. And I'm sure there's, uh, I think you actually touched on some of these, but what I, I like to ask as a last question, what, what, what's a mistake that you made personally or professionally that you've learned the most from? And it could be singular or it could be repeated. Well, I, you know, we all make mistakes. I think one of the mistakes I've made in the past is not doing thorough enough interviews yeah. and then finding that when I have to write the story, I don't have enough information that happens to you once or twice. It will never happen again because you're stuck with trying to write it and you're embarrassed. And if a piece doesn't make air, oh, I mean, so I've done that. Another thing that um, is knowing my limits. Um, right after 9-11, I was in a hurry to cover every story I could. It was such an important story. It affected so many Americans, but I wasn't getting enough rest. And I cried through an interview with a, a family of a fireman who died and they were not crying. That was a huge mistake on my part. It was inappropriate. And so I actually went to my my supervisors and asked to go to Europe to cover the investigation where I could separate myself. There are some stories as a mom, as as a person who has seen so much tragedy that you just know you're not going to be able to be completely impartial and you need to hand that story over to someone else and do what you can do properly. And so I went to Germany and I covered the investigation there. And I I really ended up then doing investigation into 
you know, the different kinds of uh, ricin, uh, the poisons that were going out. But it, I found that I could not do families of the victims. I had done so many and I couldn't be impartial. I couldn't do that properly. That was a mistake and it was inappropriate on my part. Well, that's, that's incredible self-awareness to be able to, it, a lot of times we're way too close to things, but we're not it's someone else who has to yank us out of it rather than us being able to look in the mirror and pull ourselves out of it. You have to be very careful. You, I mean, it's, we're all human beings. No one's completely impartial. We all have some kind of investment. Uh, we used to talk about issues like, and there's always been a big discussion at work. If you're covering something like abortion, do you see it through a different lens when you're a woman, when you're a young woman, as you might as a man? You really have to do self-examination all the time. Are you covering the story properly? Um, I did get kind of a great event, something that happened this year that helped me. You know, I did a story on a guy named Mario Garcia who was convicted of killing a woman. They never found her body back then. They didn't find her body. And I interviewed him. Talk about a scary interview. My heart was pounding through that because I was worried he was going to walk out. And I was worried he might be innocent. There wasn't enough evidence. He was so, he, he was very strong in his denials and he had a family and he worked in a hospital. And I knew there was evidence or just, you know, I worried in my heart and we aired the story and I worried, I worried. And then this year, you know, he did go to prison. And this year they found the young woman's body and her body was on his property. And I, I talked our show into doing a, a new update. It's going to air um, this month uh, in January. It's going to um, air so that people know that even with a no body case, sometimes they really get it right. I felt that case was good for everybody. And it certainly made me feel better. Um, he did it. You know, she was found on his property and he just was a very good liar. And uh, so that story, that was a really good lesson for me. That was a very good story. And I was so glad we got to go back and show, yes, they did it right. And this man lied to me. Compulsive liars are, are incredibly charismatic. And yeah, yeah, it is. He was good. He was good. I've dealt with one or two in my life. And the, sometimes you just think you have a catch them in a corner and they just jump right out of that corner. And you're like, yeah, I mean, it's a talent <laughs> really as much as anything. I wanted people at home to know that in most cases, and I think that's why people do turn to true crime. Um, one thing is I think people are fascinated with psychology and they, they love to try to figure out what makes people perfectly normal looking people uh, want to kill someone and try to get away with it. So that's always interesting, but also it's a scary world out there. And the idea that someone like this man could take your daughter. Um, she disappeared from a casino in California, never be seen again, and that he might get away with it. This story kind of, uh, I think, is consoling. It tells people that the police really work hard and they, they, Believe it or not, 15 years, they were still determined to find her body for the family. And they gave peace to this family. And I think that it's one of those really good stories. The police have gotten a lot of negative press over the last few years. And in some cases, the officers deserve it, but not in this case. This is a case of very devoted investigators who wanted to find 
uh, the young woman for her parents to give them peace, and they did. And so I think um, that kind of story is really sums up in many ways why people watch true crime. They want to make sense of the world, and they want to know that there are people out there making sense of the world and protecting people from evil. And that's what happened in the Mario Garcia case. Fascinating. Well, Aaron, where can people uh, find you, learn more about you and your work? Well, if they watch CBS News, they're <laughs> likely to see me. I, yeah. um, I I am assigned to 48 Hours. That's my home. But I do several stories every year for Sunday morning, CBS Sunday morning, which, of course, airs on Sunday morning. And I often will do crime stories for CBS This Morning because I love the whole crew there with Gail and uh, Tony. And it, it's just a very fun place to be. And then I have a podcast, My Life of Crime. And that, of course, can be found where any podcast, Spotify. And um, so I'm, I'm kind of everywhere. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter, at EF Moriarty. Although, I will be careful on Twitter, but I am at Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> all right. Well, Aaron, thank you for sharing all your great stories with us. You've had a remarkable career and it's fascinating to learn from, from all your experience. It's been fun with you, Bob. Thank you very much. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Erin and to her work and all the shows and podcasts and everything she just mentioned on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Thank you again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.